If you would please once again rise for the reading of Scripture. I'd like to read our Palm Sunday text from Luke chapter 19, verses 33 and following. As they were untying the colt, the owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Amen. You may be seated. May 9th, 2016 was the day that my son Oaks turned four years old. And that very same day was the day that we welcomed into the world our fourth child, a little girl named Shiloh. And it was an amazing day, as is the birth of each child, is it not? But this uh, particular day uh, had some unique experiences that went along with it. And so if you were to ask uh, each of our children or each of us in the family, how did Shiloh enter the world? I think these are some of the responses that you would get. If you ask my son Oaks, who was his birthday, he'd say, she was born on my birthday. First thing that he wants to tell you about her entrance into the world. If you were to ask my older son Hutch and kind of pressed him a little bit on what he really thought about his sister after she was born, he would tell you she was yucky, <laughs> which was true. And if you asked me or ever had conversation with me and my wife about it, we might say this, that she was born at home unexpectedly. It's, it's true, although we uh, prepared for Rebecca, my wife, to labor a little bit at home and then for me to drive her to the hospital to give birth like we had done three previous times, this time it was a little different. You see, like what you just saw in the video, she's actually in what we thought were the earlier stages of labor, and this is us singing happy birthday to Oaks in between contractions. Yeah, not being able to blow out the candles wasn't very funny to my wife as the next contractions came. Three minutes after that video, my wife's water broke. One minute later, I was holding a baby in my arms, handing her back to her mother. I know. I also know that I'm not a doctor. So it was a bit surprising to me as it's surprising to you. Thankfully, two days before, I happened to look on YouTube on my phone uh, what to do in case of a, you know, unexpected delivery at your home, and it was incredibly helpful. So win, you know, win one for the internet. There are good reasons that we have it. But I think what was more interesting than what Oaks thought or what my son Hutch thought or even what I experienced in those rapid events as they happened is 
what was going on in the mind of my wife? And I think that's what's actually most interesting with any birth story of what is going on in the mindset of the mother. What can enable a woman to go through such a thing? What was my wife's mindset as Shiloh entered the world? But before we uh, consider those questions, I want to ask another question that has to do with the text we just read. How did Jesus enter Jerusalem? Because once again, this is an event that can have different types of answers. You could say, well, I mean, he entered Jerusalem on a colt or a a donkey and with uh, cloaks laid down and palm branches waving, and he, you know, kind of meandered down the Mount of Olives towards the temple. Or you could say, as according to Jesus' identity, he, he entered as king and as a very public Messiah. Or you could say that Jesus entered with disciples shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and Hosanna. But also with Pharisees yelling, be quiet, enough. But to me, none of these really fully answer the question of how did Jesus enter? Because what I want to know is like the the mother who's giving birth, I want to know what was going on through his mind. What was his mindset? What was he thinking about? What were his expectations and his purpose? And what kept him moving forward? And so to answer this set of questions, we're going to have to look outside of Palm Sunday to three scriptures that illuminate Jesus's mindset as he entered Jerusalem. And then I want us to see also what it means for those who choose to follow him too. And the big idea here, I like to put the answer out before you so you can consider it, is this, that Jesus entered Jerusalem embracing the cost, the mission, and the joy so we can too. Jesus entered Jerusalem embracing the cost, the mission, and the joy, so we can too. So to start, Jesus entered embracing the cost. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, apparently delivering a baby is a very painful experience. And I'm not even just talking about for me. Apparently, for the woman, it is also very difficult. I've been told that it's the closest time that a woman will understand what it feels like for a man to have a cold. It's, on, it's, it's almost that bad. And historically, this has been important to know prior to getting involved in the business of baby making. For the first one, afterwards, you might be able to say, nobody told me it was like this. But you go to the second and the third, and on your fourth child, you know, you know what's coming. Now, that's not to say that my wife, Rebecca, was looking forward to this aspect of birth, the pain, but to say yes, that we want to have another kid, meant my wife was willing to embrace that pain, because cost is always part of the package. In Luke chapter 9, verses 18 and 20, Jesus asks his disciples, who do they think he is? And Peter, in one of his better moments, says, you are the Christ of God. This is an important moment. It's, it's a bit of a turning point. Peter and, his, and the disciples are recognizing Jesus' identity and his purpose. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the promised deliverer. He's the king. He's David's son. And the crowds would say John the Baptist or Elijah or some other prophet. But the disciples say the Christ of God kind of person that you would want to herald victoriously and lay your cloaks down before as he walks into the city. This is a good moment. 
And Jesus ruins the moment. You ever have a friend like that? Someone who just really seems to excel at ruining moments? Like you're all excited because you bought all these lotto tickets and you show them and they remind you of how there's you know better chance of getting struck by lightning 10 times than you actually winning any money. That's a ruined moment, right? Or how about uh, you get a new job and you're excited about it and you're telling your friends and they're like, oh, you should read this study that I just read on carpal tunnel syndrome and you might not want to go into that field actually and they just ruin the moment. Well, here's how Jesus does verse 21 of chapter 9, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, of course, Jesus' purpose isn't to ruin the moment, but to correctly define what kind of Christ he was and what is the cost of our deliverance. They wanted a king to deliver them from the oppression of Rome, And to restore Israel to greatness. But Jesus, God's anointed, would be a suffering Messiah. A Christ of pain and rejection and death. But notice he says that it must occur. As one scholar I read this week said, Jesus' suffering, rejection, and death is a divine necessity that takes place in accordance with the divine plan. Jesus came to die. And he tells them not to tell anyone, not because it's false, but because it's dangerous, not because he's going to run away from it, but because he wants to initiate the events that follow in its due course. And he does so on Palm Sunday by entering into Jerusalem on a donkey to the cheers of his disciples, because Jesus not only knew the cost, he embraced it. Jesus entered embracing the cost. So what about us? Well, Just as Jesus embraced the cost, we too are called on to embrace the cost. Immediately after Jesus tells the disciples that he will suffer many things and be rejected and be killed, he says this, verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will save it. Jesus immediately dispels the notion of a fluffy, comfortable Christianity. And in in the aftermath of his own costs, he lets us know what ours are. Three things. First, to deny ourselves. At the heart of discipleship, at the core of Christianity, is the rejection of a life centered on our own interests and fulfillment. It's not just about rejecting certain things we deem bad. It's rejecting this desire to place ourselves above Christ. Secondly, to take up our cross daily. This is the call for the daily commitment, even to the point of death. If the first requirement was us to say, you know, we need to die to ourselves in a figurative sense, this one is to say even our own suffering and bodies are there on the table. And third, to follow Jesus. This is the idea that following Jesus actually takes following Jesus. That we listen to what he says and we do it. And Jesus is making it clear there's cost to following him. And if we're intent on self-satisfaction and self-preservation and self-autonomy, then we'll actually lose what is most important to us, which in that case would be ourselves. But if we take on the cost, declaring that there's something more important than us, well, then Jesus says there's something far greater to be had 
which we'll get to in a moment. For Jesus, the point for his hearers is that they would count the cost, but for Luke, writing to followers in Christ, and for us as we read this, it's a reminder that we have already counted the cost, and we should not be surprised when there is suffering for his namesake. Jesus entered embracing the cost so that we can too. Jesus also entered embracing the mission. Now, back on that May 9th day, leaving the doctor's office earlier that afternoon, no sign of labor, nothing's happening, so we're driving back to my uncle's house where my parents are, watching our kids, and we're sitting in the driveway, and we were thinking about how, what are we going to do for Oaks's birthday? We were thinking of going to a new pizza place that was in San Juan that we hadn't tried yet, and as we're talking about it, I started to notice that she'd get kind of quiet and get a a sort of serious face, a face that I'd seen before exactly three times <laughs> in our marriage. And as she got this, we realized, you know what, going to a public pizza place is probably out of the question. We need to go home. And this uh, serious face that they ha- she has, it's this sort of determined look and a quietness that would come upon her that meant labor was beginning. And we needed to be somewhere where she could focus Robert Bradley, in his book, Husband, Coach, Childbirth, compares this moment to the focus and endurance of pro athletes. It's a willful determination to relax every part in the body in order to ride through the waves of tortured heat and agony that travel all throughout her body with each thing that we just, well, that's a contraction. It's amazing to have a word that really doesn't capture any of that. And having watched my wife go through this four times, I will say, yes, it is professional athlete level kind of focus because everything else fades away because she has her face set on the mission of bearing this child. Having just told his disciples twice of the cost that was coming Jesus' way, the entire book of Luke shifts on this next verse. Luke 9, 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Labor was starting, and the time was drawing near for Jesus to complete what he had come to do, his death, his resurrection, and his return to the Father. And so he set his face on Jerusalem. I love that phrase. And he set his face there. It helps us to get at the mindset that Jesus had. He was determined to follow God's plan, no matter what the costs. And he was determined to put these events into, into motion. And to say that he has his face set to go to Jerusalem is to say that he's embraced the mission. And that mission immediately has cost. Verse 52 of chapter 9, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Do you notice that? Immediately, he is rejected because of the mission that he has just set and put into place. Man, nothing helps us get off track like initial rejection to the plans that we have. The Samaritan village rejects Jesus' mission just as he determines to go that way. But Jesus is not swayed because Jesus didn't just know the mission, he embraced it. And the mission, I think, summed up well in Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is a mission that had Jesus looking beyond the clamor of the crowds in order to see the pain of the cross. 
And that's why from, if you follow through and read through from Luke chapter 9 all the way through 19, you continue to get this sense that Jesus is like the needle on a compass. And no matter what happens, whether the, someone needs to be healed or the disciples need to learn something new or opposition arises, no matter where the compass is facing and where it takes Jesus, his face is set on Jerusalem. And there will be no detracting him from that mission. Jesus entered embracing the mission because he wasn't just going to Jerusalem to die. He was going to die for us. His death would be the means for rescuing all who were lost. So he set his face. So what about us? Well, I'm sure you'll see a pattern here. Just as Jesus embraced the mission, so we too are called to embrace the mission. In the very next passage, still in Luke 9, he says so much. He says to another, he said, follow me. But He said, this is the man speaking to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I'll follow you. Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, without getting into all the nitty-gritty of what is a little bit of a difficult passage, let me sum it up like this. Jesus demands unqualified commitment to him and to his mission. A commitment made thoughtfully and without excuses or looking back. Now, what is this mission that Jesus calls us to? Here, he calls it proclaiming the kingdom of God. He explains it, I think, most fully in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the mission to which we are called to be disciples, making disciples, growing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our place of school, and in our place of business, neighborhoods and communities, and in our church with our faces firmly set on that mission. So we need to ask ourselves, well, what would it look like? What would it look like if all my decisions were made based on the reality that I am called to make disciples? Would it change how I worked or where? Would it change where I lived or how I spent my money? Would it change how I took care of my own soul or or my family so that we were focused more on Christ and less on ourselves? Because Jesus is calling here every architect, every landscaper, every accountant, teacher, CEO, student, mom, dad, grandpa, and grandma to be a disciple maker and to embrace the mission. Brothers and sisters, Jesus entered embracing the cost and the mission so we can too. Now let's kind of take a moment here and just be honest with what I've presented so far. If you're still here with me, uh, what I've essentially talked about is an incredibly important mission with incredibly high costs. And all that you maybe have gotten so far is that, well, Okay, Jesus says it's the right thing and times are going to be hard, so I guess I just take one for the team and do it. It all sounds a little dour, doesn't it? Like making sacrifices to win a battle that you've just been told needed to be won, but it doesn't really impact you. 
If Christianity is all cost and mission, then even if true, it sounds like a burdensome and a hard thing to bear, which is important why Jesus also entered embracing the joy. We have another video. It's, it's a little chaotic. Um, I'm holding it, and I'm all over the place because it takes place about two minutes after Shiloh is born. Why I turned the camera off for those two minutes is still a point of regret in my life and with my wife, but I turned it back on shortly thereafter. And just minutes after Shiloh's birth, my wife Rebecca is there calm and glowing. And she's happily holding her new baby while trying to tell her bewildered children why it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. (laughs) that this baby just came with no medical personnel around and that everything was going to be okay. As Jesus told his own disciples in John 16, 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Four times I've gotten to witness that amazing miracle where this joy of the new child outshines the pain to get him or her there. I can't tell you how quick the turnaround has been. Sometimes it's been that very night or a couple days later when we're driving home from the hospital and Rebecca has looked at me and said, I can't wait to do that again. (laughs) Were you in there with you? Because not only does the joy replace the sorrow, but when you know what's coming, it can actually motivate you to enter into it. Hebrews 12.2, Pastor Micah read at the beginning of the service, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Not only was the cost and the mission set before him, but also joy. And we don't understand joy, but it is a joy big enough to make all of the suffering and all of the physical pain and the pouring out of God's wrath upon him in our place made it all worth it made it all seem insignificant in comparison to the joy that he was set upon. Now, the author of Hebrews has in mind the joy that results from finishing the mission. This is why it talks about Christ sitting down, because it's done, but it also shows him returning to the Father's presence. And what I didn't emphasize earlier when Jesus was relaying the cost is that Jesus also knew, in addition to his death, was that he would be raised. Not only did Jesus know that great violence and rejection and wrath was in store for him, but he also knew the triumph that came next and that for this, everything else was worth it. So this is the joy of victory over sin. This is the joy of perfected obedience. This is the joy of the vindication of God's justice. It's the joy of the glory and honor that is poured out on his name. It's the joy of extending forgiveness for sins and in turn granting others the opportunity to share in his joy in the presence of the Father. Jesus didn't just know the joy. He embraced it. 
And it is this joy that outshines all the costs and it gives life blood to the mission. So Jesus entered embracing joy. And once again, he calls us to do the same, that you and I, that we would embrace the joy. In our last growth group section, as we were working through James, there's several times where this idea of suffering and trial as a Christian came up. And we recognized in to a T, each one of us said, yes, I get it. Pain and suffering because of our sovereign God is actually doing something good in us. It's producing maturity and more Christ-likeness and it's bringing glory to God. And we said, we get all that, but you know what? I still don't want it. It's because we feel like kids being told to eat bitter vegetables, knowing that technically it's good for us if things like fiber and vitamins are real, but we don't like it. It doesn't taste good to us. And so out of obedience, we might be willing to choke it down, but we do not enjoy it because we misunderstand the centrality of joy. Just as Jesus was fueled by his expectation of future joy, so can we too. Eternal life with God is our source of joy. In Luke 10, they come back from uh, accomplishing this mission of uh, preaching Christ, proclaiming the kingdom, and even the spirits are subject to him. And Jesus says, don't rejoice because of that. Rejoice because your name is written in God's book. Jesus doesn't ask us to desire pain or suffering. He asks us to desire joy. I think that's something we can get behind. For the joy that we're to share with him in part now and to enjoy fully and perfectly in his presence. Psalm 1611 would be one to memorize. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And that is why Jesus, in the face of the sorrow felt by his disciples, tells them, joy, greater joy is coming. But for them, they didn't understand, and so it would be a surprising joy through the sorrow. But for Jesus, he knew what was coming, and so he fixed his eyes, and he was set upon it from the beginning. And in turn, he's saying, and Hebrews is saying, we can do the same thing. We too can embrace the joy. Christians, there are costs to following Jesus, and many of you have felt them. And some of you are going through things right now. You might even be wavering, and all of us, here's the good news, all of us have costs to come. But we have a mission to stick fervently to, one that is worth the Son of God leaving heaven in order to begin it, but not so that we just keep to the mission, not so that we just, well, I'll take one for the team, I'll choke down those vegetables because they're good for me. No, it is for our joy, joy unspeakable, joy inexpressible, and joy inexhaustible, found in the presence of our joy-filled, joy-giving Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus entered Jerusalem embracing the cost and the mission and the joy so we can too. I keep saying this phrase, so we can too. And on the one hand, you've probably seen that there's a sort of example that Jesus has set, but that's not the full meaning of what I mean by so we can too. Rather, what I mean is Jesus and what he has done is the one who makes it possible for us to follow him. 
It's the very work that Jesus did by living his perfect life and dying in our place and rising again that enables us to follow him. He embraced the cost that was too high for us to pay. He embraced the mission that had us in mind and all for the joy that he could share with us. So if you're here this morning and you do not know him, may I encourage you to get to know him by reading in the Bible about him, by talking with the members of this church and coming and talking to myself and Pastor Ty and Pastor Micah and the others. So that way, if you want to believe him and you want to give your life over to him, you will have counted the costs knowing that he has a mission for you and he's ready to give you unending joy. Now for those who believe already, I hope that this has been an encouragement for you to seek the joy that God has for you. Let that be the fuel for your service and your mission. And that this week of weeks that we have opportunity to invite neighbors and coworkers and friends in order to come to church. And we have opportunity to serve at the Easter fair and Good Friday service. But there is also application for us as a church, specifically in regards to why I'm going on a sabbatical. As Pastor Ty announced last week, this extended time away is for the purpose of rest and renewal and research, and I'm going to be studying church growth through multiplication, specifically the the areas of church planting and multi-site ministries. And some people, when they've heard these words sabbatical and that I'll do a little travel and church planting, they think I'm looking for somewhere else to go. It's not true. That's not it at all. The purpose of this, to put it vividly in terms of what we've been talking about today, I want our church to get pregnant. You see, I believe that we, South Shore's church, is an exceptional church, standing in an exceptional time in our history where we will soon have facilities and abilities and leadership not only to grow our own church family and to maximize the use of our campuses, but also to train up and to send out pastors and members into different parts of Orange County for the purpose of starting new churches, churches that can reach those whom we cannot in any way. I know as I look into this, anything that we do in order to fulfill the mission will have costs, but I believe that there is greater joy for us when we undertake them. And if we stick to the mission with that joy in mind, if we set our face, then we will be able to enter into whatever comes our way by the grace of God. So please join me and Pastor Ty and our deacons in praying toward that end that we would continue to grow in saved people and in spiritual maturity in obedience to Christ and in compassion to our community and that we as a church sometime in the future would conceive because of the joy set before us. May 9th, 2016, Shiloh entered into the world because of a mom who had embraced the costs, the mission, and the joy. Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem embracing the ultimate cost, mission, and joy. And each day, he invites you and me into it. To enter in 
as we have opportunity to do so in our own way, whatever God has in store for us. And the question is, will you enter? Jesus entered, so we can too. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus, and that despite all the costs, he entered. Thank you that you have given us the chance in our life to join your mission and to join in with your exceeding joy. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Amen.